call upon the name of the Lord and remind each other of the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the reality of the living Christ who gave his life for us and rose again from the dead and is, is the living Christ, is effective in our lives, is the power of the universe. So the church to come together to encourage one another to love and good works. And that love, not only to one another, but but first of all, giving ourselves to the Lord and loving Him. And knowing that He loves us, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that if we sort of believe in Him, would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's a great message. That's a message that we want to continue to get out into our community. Lives that are, are distressed and troubled and not at peace can know the peace of Jesus Christ. Prayer for the, this Christmas season that our region, the Durham region, would turn the great revival of God's work in our hearts and would move out into the lives of people and hundreds upon hundreds of people would come to know Jesus Christ. Our Father, that's our prayer, that's our desire. We desire that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up in our lives, in our, in our speaking, in our thoughts, in our actions, that the people of this community would know Him. Whom to know is life eternal. Father, thank you so much. Uh, it is so good to come together this morning. Another week of work put behind us. And, and now gathering and setting ourselves up for the next week that's just beginning. Giving you the first fruits of our love and our, our adoration and our worship. Allowing the Holy Spirit to prep our lives for what you have for us this coming week. Strengthen us, Lord. Now take us to your word and and impress it upon our hearts that we might apply it to our lives through the power of God's Spirit. Help us, Lord, to receive it, to welcome it into our lives, into our actions, into our words, that it might have a powerful effect around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel Propson, a philosophy professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, wrote an article entitled Mammon, or Manna and Mammon. He wrote it in the journal Touchstone. With respect to the issue of giving, he writes this as his introduction. For many years, when the subject of tithing came up, I laid low. Many of my fellow Christians seemed rather uncompromising about it, thinking that every Christian ought to tie the full 10% of his income, no excuses. I didn't disagree to their faces, of course. They had the scriptures to back up their claims. I had, what? A few petty rationalizations at best. I could cite circumstances that would justify withholding the full 10% to pay for unanticipated surgery, for example. He's American, he has to worry about those kind of things. But this line of reasoning was no good. My friends weren't out to deny me my needs. So in the end, the brutal fact staring me in the face was this. I didn't need a tenth of my income. I kept it because I wanted it. Moreover, my own church's attitude toward tithing confused me, and still does. Like many other churches, mine seemed rather casual about this whole offering business. The word tithe never came up, and no one spoke of the necessity of giving to the church. 
It was as if the concept of giving one's first fruits to the Lord had been blotted out of the scriptures and replaced with the kindly injunction, just give what you can spare, that is, if it isn't any trouble. But tithing is trouble. If it weren't, God wouldn't have to ask for it. As time went on, I became ever more convinced that the Lord wanted my life to be totally devoted to Him, and that my giving my money was a necessary expression of this devotion. Well, many of you have, uh, have been asking me through this series, just tell us how much. You've been talking about the uh, nature of worship and extravagance toward God, but would you just please get more specific and tell us how much? You asked for it. I'm going to give you a sermon called the Sermon on the Amount this morning. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that title, but I can't. Have we never mentioned to you that the uh, mission here functions in whole and in part on the free will giving of God's people who are gathered here at this community? There is no other system of income for us. Have we, have we ever shared that with you? Maybe we have not. Every year, the cost of the ministry you receive and the blessing <coughs> others around the world benefit from is totally financed by the free will gifts of God's people here at this church. Nearly $2 million per year, half a million of which goes to world missions. We're closing in on $200,000 for outreach in the Durham region. And uh, local international compassion efforts are reach, reaching the hundreds of thousands of dollars and increasing. But that is not the reason we give. What I've just shared with you is the tangible results of our giving. I want to give you a, what I think is a central statement on the reason we give, and even broader than that, a short definition of Christianity. Christianity is changing gods. It's about changing gods. I, I, I've been various places in the world, and many of you have as well. I've searched through the scriptures, many of you have as well. And over and over again, there is a recurrent theme that the essence of being devoted to God, the Lord of heaven, is about changing gods. The gods of self, the gods of stuff, the gods of sin, and Satan. It was early in the scriptures where that great leader and statesman of God stood before the people. His name was Joshua. And he declared the reality of this statement that I have just given to you. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 and 15, Joshua said this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we're going to make a choice, he said. We will serve the Lord. 
whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the simple issue and the reality of a relationship with the God of heaven is about changing gods. It's turning in repentance from serving self, sin, stuff, Satan, other gods, to the living and true God. It's, from tur it's turning from idols to the living and true God. And giving is intimately connected to that reality. In his book, After the Faith Decision, All Else is Stewardship, Jackson writes, For most people in the West, resolving the money issue is about that final wall in the kingdom of self. About dismantling that final wall. And, and quite frankly, how difficult that dismantling is, is really a test uh, of just the kind of hold that money actually has on us. The most challenging juggling act in all of life is to try and juggle our stuff, juggle our material things, juggle our riches, juggle our money, and juggle God. In fact, Jesus made it categorically clear. It can't be done. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 17, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case people didn't understand specifically what he was talking about, Jesus made it extremely clear when he said, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do this judgment thing. You have to choose one or the other. And so this morning, I, I want to... Uh, relay to you a story that you're no doubt familiar with, found in Mark chapter 10. And I want to lay out for you from the text some principles and practices and particulars so that you can make sure you're giving enough to ensure that the change is complete. Because it seems to me that if Christianity is about changing gods, the idols of self, the idols of stuff, each of us had better make sure we are giving enough to ensure that the change is complete. This um, story is about a young man who greatly respected Jesus. He went to church regularly. He never hated anyone. His life was morally pure. He paid all of his taxes. He was always honest. He, he had no questionable dealings. He took care of his parents and held them in the highest regard. And he was sure that he was destined for eternal life. Until one day when he made that faithful choice to venture to ask Jesus what he thought. You know, um, it's always a schooling time when we fall to our knees and ask the Lord what he thinks about our lives. And then that's exactly what he did. He fell on his knees before Jesus and said, what do you think of my life? What, what more would I have to do to gain eternal life? 
Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The most important question you will ever ask and, what, and that will ever be answered. Now Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Not because Christ was trying to deflect the idea that he was correctly characterizing Jesus, but because he wanted to zero in for this guy's purposes who Jesus, who he really was. And he says to him, No one is good except God alone. So if by calling me good you're calling me God, then you're right on. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This was music to his ears. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Now look at this. Note this well. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I'd like to stay, I'd like to camp right there for a while, but time does not permit us, but I hope your heart will camp there. That's who God is. He loves us. He loves the people even before they've come to him. And so he says to him, and because he loves he gives him the answer to the final exam of a changed life. He's kept all the commandments, but here's one. Try this. One thing you lack. Oh, by the way, did I mention that this guy was very rich? He wasn't used to hearing, there's one thing you lack. This description caught him fully off guard. What do you mean there's one thing I lack? Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Sell everything I have. Excuse me, but if I do that, I will lack a whole lot of things, don't you? Why did Jesus tell him to sell everything he had? This command answers the question that he had asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now before you accuse me of being a teacher of work salvation, nothing could be further from reality. Jesus was probing into his heart and answering or asking him this question. Who or what is your God? Most, the most likely culprits are self and self. You see, this guy, he was running his own religion, pay attention, on his own strength, for his own glory and gratification. He was, in fact, saving himself. You see, he had a, he had a really disciplined life. He was living a, a very good and moral life on his own strength. If you're a disciplined person, by character, by nature, by personality. It is not really a stretch for you not to murder somebody. For you not to uh, 
steal from someone, for you not to have any dishonest dealings. It's not hard for you to respect your mother and your father. What is hard is to deal with the first commandment, which is the one he had not prioritized in his life. And it is what? You tell me. Nor the gods before you. This is murdering. This is what the Bible talks about as murdering. Are you, are you not sure? No other gods before you. No other gods before me. This is about priority. The issue of our money, of our stuff, of our finances. It's an issue of priority. And so he speaks to this young man and he says, You've got yourself another God, my son. It is stronger in your life than me. Because I'm commanding it to go, and it's commanding to stay. And it's staying. The problem in the Christian journey is we can fool ourselves into believing that Christianity is about changing to be good. The average self-disciplined person can do that in their own strength. Christianity is about changing gods. See, um, how can I know that in my life I'm making this transition? How can I know in my life that I... That my life is about changing gods and that it's happening. God has devised a system throughout the scriptures uh, for checks and balances in our life to ensure that, that in fact, uh, in terms of the pecking order, that God is in front of your wallet. I want you to come with me on a journey for a few moments to Deuteronomy chapter 26. People have asked me about the whole idea of first fruits. They ask, what are you talking about? You've talked to us about first fruits. What are first fruits? What does that mean? Deuteronomy chapter 26 talks about the priority of God. It talks about what first fruits are all about. Give your first fruits to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving to you, as an inheritance, and have taken possession of it, and settled in it. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil. Notice it says, some of all, as a gift. See, if, if it didn't say that in the Bible, I, I, I would uh, offer to God, my, my first fruits that I'd offer to God would be vegetables. And then God, look, you can have all my vegetables. In fact, I'm not going to just give you 10%. I'm going to give you all of my vegetables. That's why it says some of all of your stuff. Because see, I, I wouldn't care about ditching vegetables. They don't mean anything to me. In fact, I like to get rid of them. If God wants to take them off my hands, that'd be just fine with me. Just make sure I have meat and potatoes, that's all. Don't tell me that potatoes are vegetable, because it'll wreck it for me with the rest of my life. <laughs> Some of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God has given you and put them into a basket. Now, by the way, God's name is mentioned in 15 verses 18 times. So what do you think the message is? 
about prioritizing God. This is about a check and balance. This is about an activity. This is about a choice that people make in their lives. An action they take to prioritize the living God. That's what this text is about. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror, with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house this sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Down in verse 15, looking down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people, O God. Bless your people Israel, the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and with honey. This is the offering of the first fruits, of prioritizing God, of setting aside the first of your crop, uh, each, some of each. It was taking a, the first sheaf of grain and, and it was offered to the Lord before you harvest anything else from your field or, or produced it. It was in effect saying, we used to be in bondage. We used to be spiritually enslaved. And our great God has rescued us from bondage and has taken us into a land of abundance where life is abundant. He saved us. And now we are bringing this offering and we are declaring that our God is a saving God. And we are placing this offering before him and saying, count me into this salvation. They sing and they rejoice. The gathering of offerings and putting them in the collection plate is an amazing testimony of who we really are. That's why we gather together and we collect offerings. It's, and there are so many other ways that we could, we could take offerings, but we bring the offerings to the church and we place them in the plate. And in so doing, we are stating the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, came to die for us, to rescue us out of spiritual slavery. And by being resurrected, the living Christ has rescued us and given us life. He's given us abundant life. And I am testifying this day by placing my offering in the plate that he is a saving God who has fulfilled his divine promises. And I am testimony to that. And I'm placing my offering in here and saying, count me in. This is a great salvation. Let's sing and praise our great God together. That's what offering time. As God's people practice that week by week, 
we are reminding ourselves of who saved us and how great he is and how much we love him and how everything that we have is given by him to us. He's the first priority. God alone. No other gods before him. Our personal giving marks us out as personally receiving. You say, well, that's Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and said, at the beginning of the week, each of you set aside a gift to bring and worship your great God. It was close to this time, 2,000 years ago, that the angels lit up the sky and proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those men on whom God's favor rests. And for 2,000 years, God's people have been placing offerings before him, saying that divine promise was fulfilled. And I'm a recipient of that salvation. Here, Lord, receive my offerings. The life-giving God who has given us life. Let me worship him. Let me give him my best. Let me fulfill an action that keeps God in front of everything in my life. He says to the young man, sell everything you have and secondly, give to the poor. How much did you say? Sell everything. You know, um, in this matter of our response to the Lord and who he is to us and our gifts and our giving and our offering. It seems to me that the principle of scripture is however much it takes in your life for God to be first priority and for you to live by faith and trust in God. For him, it was everything. You know, others have, have come and Tell me how much. Give me a dollar figure. Give me a number. Did God give us any sort of guy? Well, the scriptural principle that we find, of course, is called the time. Stay away from it. That's law. When you say that's law, it's high, 10%. It's really code for, I don't want to give God that much. Can't you find a loophole of some sort? Before the law was handed down in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham encountered what I believe to be a, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. The form of a priest called Melchizedek. It was there that Abraham fell on his knees before him and offered him a tent for all he had. Before the law. I also uh, noticed that in Malachi chapter 3, in particular verse 6, where God is talking about the tithe, it says in terms of an introduction, I, the Lord, do not change. That means our Father in heaven is the same today, yesterday, and forever. At the time of Malachi, God had an issue with the people. 
read on further, he says, So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, the question to him was, how are we to return? He, God replies, will a man rob God? But yet you rob me. But you ask, how do you rob me? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation, because you're robbing me. Now, um, at the time, God was saying, I, I find the people of this time unacceptable in their gifts. And he says, I, by the way, am a God who does not change. I, I wonder, sometimes I wonder in my heart, as I consider the, at times the, the meager results of our efforts to resource mission, I, I wonder at times if the same God who was upset with them is, is a God who's upset at us during our time, in our time. I, I wonder. So much so that I look around my house. I look at my driveway. I look at my stuff, but I can tell you that I sleep better at night when I know that I'm not holding any stolen property in my house. <laughs> if I couldn't give at least 10% to the Lord as I read through the scriptures, you want to know, you've asked me, you want to know, if I didn't feel that I could give at least 10% to the Lord's work, I would sell my possessions, I would downsize until I could. Because I wouldn't want to be sitting in my house thinking, I have stolen property here. Remember, you asked. Now, if you're a legalist, you have to give 10%. But I would suggest you give more than 10% to show that you don't think Jesus costs too much. If you're not a legalist, you better give no less than 10%, or you'll treat the Lord like he is worth too little. This is a joke. This is not something you should get too serious about. But then again, maybe you should. See, Jesus still sits by the offering plate and checks out proportion. The same as the day the widow gave all to the offering plate. Jesus says, test me in this. In the New Testament, we are free to be extravagant. You know, I think of that Old Testament story where the Arameans were closing in on his Israelites in 2 Kings. And, and uh, the king of Israel, Joash, he goes to Elisha the prophet and he says, we're being attacked by the Arameans, what should we do? And Elisha says, take a bow and an arrow and shoot it out the east window towards Aram. And so he does. And then he says, now take arrows and Strike the ground with them. And what he meant by that was take an arrow and fire it into the ground. So King Joash takes an arrow and he fires it out the window into the ground. He takes up the second arrow and he fires it out the window into the ground. He takes the third arrow and he fires it into the ground. And he stops. And Elisha said, why'd you stop? If you had a fired all of your arrows, you would have had complete victory over the Arameans. But now you will only have three victories. That's the principle
principle that runs throughout the scripture. Don't hold back on God. He longs to, to, to be extravagant in his blessings. In fact, in Malachi, God says, test me in this. Test me in this commitment of your resources and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour upon you the blessing of God. It's an act of faith. The first issue was, is God a priority? The second is, it is necessary for us to give a healthy proportion away from ourselves so that we will learn to trust in the Lord only. Faith alone. God alone. Faith alone. Change from me to God. The final statement he makes to this young man is this. Give, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now all that guy could hear was, I'm losing all my money. And here's what Jesus said. And you will have treasure in heaven. We think we'll be divesting ourselves from the gift of God. We think we'll be emptying ourselves. We think we'll be emptying out our wallets and our bank accounts. Jesus want this guy to remove everything. See, as the um, disciples were standing around, it was school time, it was class time. They were watching what was going on. And they noticed what Jesus was saying and what he was doing in the response of this guy. And, and Jesus took note of that and he said to them, oh, by the way, uh, you ought to know that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle and I would have expected Jesus to say that a rich man to part with his money. Would you expect him to say that? That's not what he said. He said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now that was pretty shocking to them. On a number of counts. Not the least of which is from their perspective, if this guy was rich, it, from their way of thinking, meant he was fully blessed of God. Jesus was pointing out, you better not judge a book by its cover. That was Jesus saying that, uh, in fact, this rich man could buy his way into heaven. Not in the least. The point that Christ was making is, the reason I am telling him to sell everything is because his everything stuff is his God. It's in the way of salvation. It might be something different for you. It might not be money for you. What's in the way? That's what Jesus would put his finger on and point out. That's what he did. He wasn't prepared to let this guy off the hook and say, oh, well, you know what? Just give me a tie. He didn't downsize this thing. Because for that guy, he needed to sell off everything. The disciples were completely shocked. They said, well, if this guy can't get into heaven, who can? What was Jesus' answer to them? You can't buy your way into heaven. With man, this is impossible. 
what this? Salvation. The obtaining of salvation. It's impossible with man. You couldn't buy it. You, you couldn't give enough money in the offer plate at Calvary Baptist Church to buy yourself into heaven. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even a rich person getting into heaven. It's not about whether you're rich or poor. It's whether or not you're rich or poor in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's what he was teaching them at that moment. And this guy, sadly, the guy he loved, he, as he stands before him, this guy bowing before him, who he loved, he said, this guy is letting money get in the way of salvation. The critical danger of wealth is that it makes choosing another kingdom easier. By world standards, this story is written to North Americans. We are the rich, young people. And the problem in our culture, the problem and the challenges of reaching Durham region are very resident in this story. It is possible, not only possible, it is probable that most of us in this room and most of us in the region have enough money that we don't need God. No need of it. And the living Christ says, you better divest yourself of whatever you have to in order to turn your life to me. God alone. Faith alone. And he says to him, in doing this, you will have treasures in heaven. It's about an investment. Accumulate wealthy, spiritual investment portfolios. <coughs> the accumulation of stuff will make choosing a different kingdom easier. I believe that this young guy had the gift of giving. You know, I believe that. He had to turn his life over to God because God had enabled him to make a lot of money. And I believe that God enables people to make money who have, when they come to him, they will have the gift of giving. And in giving, they just go back up there and make a whole bunch more money. I would suspect that that guy in a couple of weeks or a couple of months would have all of his money back to give all of It's a choice you make, you know. From money to the treasures of God. I bumped into a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. A rich businessman. Not in our community. In another community. He said to me, hey, Frank, what are you preaching on these days? I said, I'm preaching on giving. Really? He says to me, I said, yeah. I said, you know what? I said, sometimes I just feel like I'm just a fundraiser. And he looked at me like, and this guy's a pastor, he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, asking people to give money. I said, did you realize? He said that you, by teaching your congregation to give, are teaching them 
to invest in the things of God. What a great privilege that is. Was Jesus' message to you? Not from a pastor, but from a rich businessman who I know puts his money where his mouth is. The message to the young man was you better make sure that your resources are such that your life is about God alone and about faith alone and that you clear out any obstacle that's there that would prevent you from following me. He said, you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says to him, and follow me. Father, wrap up this series our the demonstration of our love for you our worship of you our understanding of what we've been given by you I pray Lord that the spirit of God will continue as he has to probe the recesses of our hearts and find out if there be any Preventing us from fully following Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. So if you were following along the story, you're probably asking, so what happened? What did the young guy do? It says that after Jesus told him that, his face fell. And he walked away sad. And then it says this, because he had great Um, the test of giving is whether or not you get it. Whether or not you, you understand that everything that you have came from God in the first place. And that all we're doing is giving back a portion to Him. And then He turns around and redistributes everything. He said, by the way, Peter, no one who's given houses or mother or father or sister or brother or fields to me as with Rather, they get hundreds of houses and fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and fields and persecution and trouble and eternal life in the kingdom to come. I can testify to the truth of that. You don't give away anything to God. He always, always a Christian, to be a 
Christian, one must confess Jesus as Lord. The teaching on giving is put your wallet where your mouth is. Is he Lord or is he not? Our Father, I pray that we would be a people you would find who are generous and extravagant in our worship and our giving. That there would be none among us, Father, that would be robbing you. Who would have in our possession stolen property. But that everything that we would have would be because it's what you want us to have. You've given it to us. That we've appropriately given back extravagantly and richly to you. Because you, our Father, are giving God. And as your children, we desire to have the characteristic and nature of our Father. May we truly be, Father, those people.